Good morning. Today's reading is Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten in two pieces, and her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches. For who, her wound is incurable, and has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethleaphra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafer, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the, the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Axib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Meresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning on this uh, snowy day. God, we're here to uh, make much of you. And God, there is so much to make much of. God, we acknowledge that you are um, our creator, our savior, our sustainer. God, that you hold all things together by the power of your might. And uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, we get to live on this side of history where we've got the complete canon, where we have 66 books that point to your glorious rescue of your people. And I thank you, God, that we are recipients of your grace. I thank you, God, that as a result of your grace, that we are um, your sons and daughters in whom you delight because of our union with Christ. Lord, I thank you that, um, that you've, give, you've sealed us with your spirit. And you've given us the uh, power to, and the ability to, um, to say no to the flesh and sin and to say um, yes to your uh, protective and life-giving um, commands. So God, thank you for, uh, that we're here this morning to make much of you. And I pray, God, that uh, I'm a beggar um, in need of you this morning, God, as we launch into this series I thank you for the book of Micah. I thank you, God, for the way that you've uh, just ministered to my heart over the last couple of weeks. And God, I just pray that just a piece of that, that you just give a piece of that to these brothers and sisters here this morning. And God, just uh, one other, if there's anybody here, Lord, that is um, unregenerate, God, only, only you know if they have yet to put their faith and trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins, if they're still trying to um, earn their way to you, God, I pray that uh, you would... Um, Today in this series, uh, God, please um, save them. 
so that they can avoid um, your judgment and enjoy um, a relationship with you forever. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. We are starting the book of Micah today. Um, it's going to be a seven-week sermon series. And as I prayed, I, I just uh, I hope that, it's, uh, that you're encouraged in some way. Um, as I've been encouraged, uh, it's a, uh, we don't spend a lot of time in the prophets. Um, as um, Heather read, you know, it could sound like, wow, that's a bummer. I'm glad I came today. I'm going to talk about judgment. <laughs> you did a great job, by the way, Heather. I only noticed like four or five mispronunciations. <laughs> Didn't at all. You know, it's, uh, oftentimes it's um, easier for me to say, see the sins of our culture than it is to see my own sin. It's so easy to get caught up in the uh, sins of the culture we live in. And we live in a culture that's increasingly um, looking um, less like anything Christ had intended. For me, I can look down on others who may not have what I have. I can spend time building my own kingdom and trusting in my own resources. I vote for policies and candidates that are to my advantage. That's often my default. This election season, uh, this last Monday, I did something different, actually. I spent about three and a half hours just kind of going through um, the amendments and making sure that I understand them, making sure that I'm not voting for them because um, some TV show told me to vote for them or some radio host told me to vote for them. Rather than asking what candidates and amendments would benefit me, I asked the question of what candidates and amendments are best for the culture at large. Kind of odd. First and foremost, I look through a biblical lens. Does, does God for, um, is there anything that these candidates or these amendments stand for that is um, forbidden by God's word? But then secondly, I look through the lens of what's best for the culture at large, even if it is harmful or an inconvenience to me. I don't know, some of you are listening to it and go, well, that's, you know, about time you woke up to that, Hardy. That's what I've been doing for my entire life. When I do everything to preserve my comfort, do everything to preserve my lifestyle at the expense of others, it reveals actually a selfish, idolatrous heart. It reveals an idol-worshiping heart. And in addition, it's, it's oftentimes easier for me to see the decay and the sin in our culture rather than the wickedness and the deceit that is at my own doorstep, like the doorstep of my heart. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. That it's, it's just so much easier to go, those guys. It's their fault. We wouldn't be in this predicament if it wasn't for them, whoever them is for you. As humans, we've continually defined good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Don't have to go too far other than look at slavery. That the church, Christians, were the, the greatest slave owners. And we justified that evil because it, it kept our kingdom moving. We had slaves. This attitude of continually defining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others is self-preservation. It actually creates injustice. If your first response to the evil and injustice in this world, and there is evil and injustice in this world, if your first response is, lock them up, they're getting what they deserve, your heart might be in the wrong place. And that's not a statement on, um, on people, um, on us um, having a court system that judges people rightly and sends them to jail. But what is your reflex? Justice is about making other people's problems your own. Jesus performed the ultimate act of justice 
when he made all of your sin his own. He did nothing but leave the Godhead, the comforts of heaven. He did nothing but come and be born in a lowly manger, live the perfect life, and go to the cross as the ultimate act of justice. Because justice actually is giving somebody giving somebody something they want but they don't deserve. Let me ask you this. Did you vote on amendments and for candidates that benefit you and your family and promotes the maintenance of your lifestyle, which isn't wrong, by the way. Here's what's wrong. Without considering what might be best or better for the culture at large. Are you more informed by Fox News and CNN than you are by the Bible, the timeless Word of God? Do you spend more time thinking and worrying about the sins of the surrounding culture, or do you spend more time allowing God to reveal the sinfulness in your own heart through His Word? In this Amazing book of Micah, there's great application for us today. There's great application for us the next seven weeks. And I trust that this little book will minister to you by revealing the fullness of God's character and spurring you on to trust Him with every aspect of your life. If there's a theme verse in this book, it's probably chapter 6, verse 8. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I'm going to give you kind of two cautions right up front that I, I want you to listen through that I want to be careful that you don't go down um, the wrong road. We don't read Micah and we don't read any of the other prophets as a recipe for what's coming to America. Last time I looked, um, America wasn't a thing when the prophets wrote this. Micah says that judgment is coming, but not because of the sins of the world, but because of sins of people in the world. It's subtle. In the same way that we don't save a nation from the top down by um, putting people in office, it's good to put Christians in office. I'm all for that. But if we want to change the culture, we change it one person at a time coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In the same way, the opposite side of that same coin is that judgment isn't coming to a country or a society because of the sins of this so-called um, institution. It's come, it would be coming because of the people that are in it. And the problem with our culture is not the organi organization, it's us. It's the church. And we're going to talk about that. Not this church specifically, but Big C. Some of you are new and going, what, what, what do we do? So the first caution is, is that when we read Micah or any other prophets, it's not a recipe for what's coming to America. Second caution, we are his covenant people by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And there is no ultimate harm and destruction that will come to you if you know Jesus Christ. You're Teflon, men and women. Nothing will stick long term. The question that this book asks and it answers is in chapter 7, verse 18, where Micah says, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? And how do we live in submission to you, Father, in the midst of this fallen and depraved world? We're going to look through the book of Micah. We're going to see God's character. We're going to see a God of wrath, actually. Glad I came today. And a God of hope. We're going to see a God who is not safe, actually, but is eternally good. A God of justice that will pour out judgment of every sin of all mankind. Jason Shelton referred to Romans 3, chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that God is just. He must punish all sin, but he's also the justifier. So those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will never be judged, ultimately. 
that scene from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, where there's Lucy and Susan talking to Beaver, and Beaver is describing Aslan. And Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is, is Aslan a man? Beaver goes, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you that he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who he is? He's the king of the beasts. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. And she says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's our Jesus. That's the triune God is that he is eternally good. He is eternally just. And he's not safe for those who have put their faith, who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he's actually not safe for his covenant people that choose to live their lives in sin. We'll talk about that as we go through this. So here we are in Micah, one of uh, 17 um, prophetic books in the Old Testament. Five are um, major prophets, 12 are minor prophets. Uh, Micah is a minor prophet, and that simply means it's shorter. It doesn't mean it's inferior, it's a smaller book. The five major prophets are, are longer books, the 12 minor are smaller books. And this book of Micah is found in the middle of, of the minor prophets. And within the minor prophets, Micah is in the middle of a trio of books. It's in the middle of Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. And all three of those prophets are dealing with the nation of Syria and also with Israel and Judah's relation to this, this hostile power. What's a prophet? A prophet is somebody that proclaims the word of God. You could say that whoever's preaching on Sunday morning is a prophet on Sunday morning. Not because we're, we're professing um, new, uh, revealing new information, but we're, we're, it's the timeless word of God. A prophet is an authorized representative of God. It's God's ambassador. Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22 gives us the acid test of a true prophet. And you know what? Um, all you got to do is turn on your TV to one of those channels that uh, are in the hundreds um, and to find out what an what a untrue prophet is. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 18. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. He's not a prophet. You need not be afraid of him. A prophet speaks what is true, always true. In the Bible, we have the final and complete revelation of God's word, and we have the final and perfect prophet, Jesus Christ. Prophets typically speak of judgment and salvation. Judgment or discipline takes place in the short term and salvation in the long term for, for God's people. Micah 1.1, here we go. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The word of the Lord came to Micah. That Micah stands on the word of God. That Micah preaches the word of God. The word of God is timeless. And Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, he says this. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. The sacred writings are none other than the Old Testament. Now listen to what, they're, the, what they teach. These sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You can be made wise for salvation through Christ Jesus in the Old Testament. He goes on to say all Scripture, Old Testament and New, but he's speaking about Old Testament here, all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Isaiah says this about the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. That's it. My words won't stand forever. Whoever you're listening to on the radio won't stand forever. Whatever books you're reading, those words won't stand forever. Those aren't bad things, but it's only the word of God that will never fade, never wither. It will stand forever. 
So Micah says, the word, it says here, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth. John Calvin said this. He said, God never changes. People never change either. Therefore, we can trust God's word to change people. Who's Micah? Micah, most of the prophets are identified by their family name or their father's name, but not Micah. He's identified by a location, Micah of Morsheth. Micah, Micah's call as a prophet is not recorded, although we can see his name in 2 Kings. We see his name in Jeremiah. Um, we see in, um, in Micah 3, verse 8, that he actually says he's speaking from the Spirit of the Lord, which gives you uh, an idea that he's, he's a prophet. He's from Moresheth, which is a small town south of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the capital city of the southern kingdom. He's probably not educated. He is a nobody from nowhere. Micah was a country boy. Unlike Isaiah, who was writing in the same time, was from Jerusalem. And I don't know why, but I thought about this song. He's a real nowhere man sitting in a nowhere land, making all of his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view. Knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? The answer is no. Micah is a nowhere man. He is sitting in a nowhere land, but he is make, he's not making nowhere plans, and he is a somebody that God has anointed him to preach the good news. He does have a point of view. He does know where he's going to, and he's going straight to the northern and the southern kingdom to pronounce judgment on them unless they turn. You see, if we are to be the people who know our God, and who want to make a difference, we must be people who let the Word of God be our guide. Not CNN, not Fox, not whatever radio show you listen to. The Word of God. The Word didn't come to the kings or the people, but to a country boy. Micah was a humble servant. And God uses people like Micah. He uses people like you and I. He uses nobodies from nowhere. We're all called to be prophets. When did this happen? When was this written? Micah prophesied between the reigns in verse 1, reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It's about a 60-year time frame. During this time, Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah also prophesied during the same time. Just prior to this, in the century before, the kingdom of Israel was united by three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then Israel, because of their sin, became divided into a kingdom in the north and a kingdom in the south. In the kingdom in the north, the, the county seat or the capital is Samaria, and the county seat in the south is Jerusalem. And what we know about the kingdom in the north is that it was wiped off the pages of history forever. Ten tribes went north, two tribes went south. And what we know about these three kings is that, that Jotham was Ahaz's dad, and Ahaz was Hezekiah's dad. Jotham and Ahaz were evil. They didn't fear God. And we know Hezekiah um, apparently listened to Micah because we're told, I think it's in Jeremiah, I don't have it written down here, that, the, that he feared the Lord. And because he feared the Lord, the Lord relented from disaster on the southern kingdom for a period of time. Who is it written to? It says at the end of verse 1, it's written to Samaria, which I just said is the capital of the north, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. He's preaching primarily in this book to the southern kingdom, which is where he's from. He's preaching primarily to God's covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. He's preaching to you and I. He's not preaching to our culture. He's preaching to you and I, his covenant people, people of the new covenant. Micah wrote to warn God's covenant people in the northern and southern kingdom of coming judgment at the hands of the Assyrians as a result of their sins and their transgressions. He says this in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness to you. Let the Lord God be a witness to you. The Lord from his holy temple. You see, what's happening here is Micah's bringing a lawsuit against God's covenant people. He is a witness. God is a witness against his people. Micah is not bringing the lawsuit. Let me restate that again. God is bringing the lawsuit. God is the witness against his people. He indicts Samaria and Jerusalem for their sins, and he pronounces judgment on them at the hands of Assyria. 
God is not silent. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you are living as if the the rest of the culture lived, God is not going to be silent. God will um, deal with our sin accordingly. He speaks and he judges. And what does he expect from his covenant people then and us as covenant people now? Worship, obedience. Remember the Abrahamic covenant back in uh, Genesis chapter 12? It says that, that from Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that was a messianic uh, prophecy that, that Jesus was the ultimate blessing that would bring blessing to all the earth. That was the, that was the Old Test- beginning of the Old Testament covenant. But there were conditions to that covenant. There's conditions to every covenant. Not so that we can enter the covenant, but because we're already in the covenant. Listen to what God said to um, referring to Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19. This is right before Sodom and Gomorrah, actually. And by the way, um, any, did anybody teach upstairs in the first service? Did any kids? You did? You know what lesson they had? Are the kids okay? Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, how do you teach that to preschoolers? Um, they need to know about God's justice just, just as much as we do. Here it is. This is about uh, Abraham, chapter 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children all the way to us and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham to what he has promised him. You see, there's conditions to the covenant. And the conditions are that we live, that that the Old Testament covenant people, the Jewish people, would live an obedient life. And they didn't. If you know the story, they didn't. Same with Moses. There's the, the Mosaic Covenant. It's, it's a continuation of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Deuteronomy 5, 6, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He didn't say, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. Go, go live and worship and have whatever idols you want. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Then the Davidic covenant where we, where we get this beautiful picture that from um, one of David's sons from his lineage would take the throne, the eternal throne. It says this, it's, it's beautiful in verse 14. It says, I will be to him a father, this descendant of David's, and, I, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, this is referring to Jesus. When he commits iniquity, did Jesus sin? No, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And what, what, what is being prophesied here is that Jesus will come and take all the sins of humanity. That Jesus will be the obedient Israelite. That Jesus fulfilled the law. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I love that. I love that, that, we, that, that nobody could keep the law. That I don't care what covenant God made with, with, with whoever. That there had to be a Savior. And there had to be a Savior that took all the sins of mankind. And on this side of salvation, there's a call to live our lives in a certain way. And 1 Peter talks about that in chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. And if you call on, call on him as father, just think about Chris's sermon last week, that, that we have a daddy that has adopted us. And we did nothing to, to earn our way into that family. And we have a daddy that will never boot us out. We have a daddy that wants to be with us. Take that truth, that beautiful truth with this. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. What he's saying here, if you call on him as father, who sent his only begotten son to be judged and killed so that you can have freedom, you don't have a right to live your life in in any way you want to live it. That we live our life in submission to the father. 
And if any of you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, all sin is judged the same. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. We're in exile on this earth, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. God has always been exceedingly good. He's been exceedingly loving. And he has no tolerance for sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. Micah 1, 3, and 4. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. I'm hoping you guys can teach that to the preschoolers next week. talk about his majesty that there's not there's not gonna be one place to hide for those who without Jesus Christ as their savior when he returns he's coming down doesn't matter if it's in the high places of idolatry or in the low places he's coming back verse 5 all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? I'll remind you that Samaria is the the, um, capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. What is the transgression of Jacob? What is the sin of Israel? Transgression means rebelling against God's standard. It's knowing that something is wrong in doing it. Sin is just missing the mark. Not just missing the mark. You might even have good intents to hit the mark, but you miss it. It's still sin. I may not want to get mad at Nancy or angry at Nancy. But when I get angry in an unrighteous kind of way, it's sin. I miss the mark. I want to ask you this. What is your high place? Is your high place being part of the religious right? Is your high place being a part of the liberal left? Can you easily, um, being on the liberal left, look at, uh, walk into a, a gym and see Fox News and go, wow, those people are idiots? Um, yeah, look down at how can they believe that way? In, in the same way, if you're, if you're on the religious right, walk into um, a CNN and watch CNN. You see, what, where Micah goes here, he goes right to the heart of our religious right, uh, excuse me, our religious left. Wow, our religious life, not right or left. You see, it's easy to be in our high place and look down on the sins of our culture, but what about our sins? That's what Micah's talking about here. Get your eyes off the sins of culture. You can't change it. Stop the Facebook posts. Stop the next door crap. Sorry, edit that out, would you? And for any young ones, I don't say that normally. I'm sorry. Micah and the Lord ultimately is concerned about the purity of the church in our sins. The sins who bear the name of Christ. You see, our high places often is that we, what we want is what we get when we want it. The church is looking more and more like the culture. You see, sex outside of marriage is no different in the big C church percentage-wise than it is in our culture. Divorce in the church is no different percentage-wise than it is in the culture. Is your high place potentially dishonest gain? Anger when things don't go your way. Looking down at others. Ah, uh, you know what? They got what was coming to them. Is your reflex judgment or is your reflex compassion? Is your high place that other people's problems are not yours? The problems of the poor, the problems of orphans, the problems of widows. It's not my problem. The problem of of other people going to hell. 
You know, you know they chose that lifestyle. It's not my problem. Is that your high place? I was talking to a lady just a little while ago, and I so appreciated her heart. She was talking to me after the service, and she works in, a, in an institution where there's um, just a lot of liberals, a lot of, lot of, lot of agendas. And I actually hate to use that word liberals because it's actually putting people in a box, but it's, but it's a bunch of people, it's a culture, it's an environment where people are antagonistic to the things of God, that they have an agenda with homosexual rights. They have an agenda with um, with conservative Christians. And she finds herself getting mad. You ever been there? You ever been there? You see it. Can I tell you? That's a high place. If your reaction to the, to the, um, the filth of the culture is more um, anger than it is compassion, I would say that you're operating from a high, a high place. Yes, sin makes God angry. Yes, sin at some level should make us angry. But Jesus operated with compassion first and foremost by, by coming. You see, what do we expect from the culture? Really, what do you expect it's, we're not going to change it from the top down. Should we vote for candidates that stand on God's word? Absolutely. Should we put our hope in that? Heck no. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Verses 6 through 7. Therefore, therefore, because of the sins and transgressions, I will make Samaria northern kingdom, a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay to waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Here's what we know, is that Assyria came in in 722 B.C. and wiped out the northern kingdom. So this, this prophecy, what Micah prophesied in chapter 6 and the first part of uh, verse 7 um, came to fruition, that God wiped them out forever. And then need to be reminded of this. The reason the gospel of Jesus is precious to us is that it offers joyful rescue from God's furious judgment. The Bible speaks in Revelation 19.15 of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And thank you, Father, for the full breadth of your scripture. It's said in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that Jesus delivers us, his new covenant people, from the wrath to come. Can I hear a hallelujah? It's never going to meet your doorstep. It is God the Father himself who sent Jesus to rescue us from his own wrath. In Romans 5, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we weren't perfect. Actually, we were running the other direction. Christ died for us. How does that inform the way that we live in our culture? That we were rebellious. We were enemies. And Christ died for us. It goes on to say, therefore, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. You know you're in a high place when you wish God's wrath on somebody else rather than their salvation, than his salvation. Individuals, you and I, I've experienced this, we're sometimes judged in this life. It's called discipline, actually. For Christians, all judgments are disciplinary, not destructive. You want to take a peek sometime at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it actually says that, that the Lord actually removed an unrepentant believer, took him to heaven. Actually, just, that's, that's God's discipline. God's ultimate purpose is not to destroy, but to save and redeem. I've got a friend that I met with last week that said this, and it was just so beautiful, I had to write it down. I'm not sure if he's this smart or if he just stole it from somebody, but he says that God is lopsidedly loving. 
God is lopsidedly loving. Who is like our God? God is a pursuing God. He is a jealous God. He is lopsidedly loving. His ultimate purpose is not to destroy, but to save and redeem. Can that be our heart too? Can that be our heart that we want salvation for people more than we want condemnation for people? God's wrath is not the problem. It's actually the solution. If God's wrath is not an offensive doctrine needing a defense, but it's a long-awaited vindication of justice after the tension that we see in the prophets. You see, God is perfectly holy and must punish all sin. And he did that on Jesus. He took all of our sin and put it on Jesus. That Jesus was just and he's also the justifier. And then Micah in verse 7 talks about the specific sins that were being judged. And throughout this book, I mean, he's going to make a, a, a long list of sins. But the, the biggest sin that, he, the sin that he starts with is idolatry. Verse 7, all of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All of her idols I will lay to waste. And from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. He says, I will do it. Why? Because of reasons of idolatry. You go, well, I don't have any carved images. I don't have any idols in my house. We're all idol worshipers at some. It's, It's worshiping somebody other than God. It's the worship of self and self-preservation. It's, it's voting for amendments and candidates that, that benefit us and not the rest of the culture. Idolatry is trusting in God's creation rather than our good creator for our ultimate hope, peace, comfort, and identity. So what just happened here in verse 7 is that Micah pronounced judgment on the northern kingdom. And we know that 22 years later, that pronouncement came to, to fruition. Now remember, Micah's from the southern kingdom. He's from Morsheth. And I can just picture the people in the south looking up at the court culture in the north and seeing the way that they're living. Going, they got what was coming to them. They got exactly what was coming to them. They were idolaters. Those northerners, they got exactly what was coming to them. How do we view the sins of the culture? And we see at the end of verse 7, he says this, actually not verse 7, verse 8, sorry. Verse 8 and 9, Micah says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, the northern wound. And it has come to Judah. It has come to the southern kingdom. The culture is at our doorstep. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. One of the distinctives of Micah is that people actually listened to him. That God relented from his judgment on the southern kingdom. Because the third king feared the Lord. The third king turned to Yahweh. But God knows us. And a hundred years after that, they were still destroyed. The sins of the culture are at the doorstep of Christ's church. What I pray that a distinctive of this church is, is that we live in the world but not of the world. That we don't let the culture impact or infect, that's the right word, who we are in the purity of this church. I pray also that we would allow the word of God to... to, um, reflect, help us see our own sin. Because sin is crouching at the doorstep of every one of us. It tells us all throughout the Bible that we, even though we are um, forgiven, forever forgiven, 
Even though the Father sees us um, as, uh, as white as snow, all of our sins as far as the east of the, is from the west have been forgiven, that our relationship with the Father can actually be harmed. Not in a positional father-son kind of way, because I am always his son. You are always his daughter. But just like in a marriage relationship that Nancy is always my wife, praise be to God, that when, that when we're um, fighting or there's sin in my heart against her, it affects our relationship. And God is jealous for relationship with us. But part of his discipline is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But it actually says in 1 Peter that our prayers are hindered when we have unrepentant sin. What I don't want you to do, what, what Micah doesn't want you to do, and God doesn't want you to do, is leave here with any kind of condemnation because you are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The new has gone, and the, the, new, the old has gone, and the new has come. But God has saved you. Jesus died a brutal death, not so that you and I can live any way we want, not so that we can look down on the culture, but so that we can live by the power of the Holy Spirit, standing in God's word, um, obedient, joyful, submissive, submissive lives to him. And that so we can go out into the culture, not judging it, but actually embracing homosexuals. I don't know if I said it in this service or last, that, that Colorado has the dubious distinction of being the first um, state of, of, the, of the 50 to elect an openly gay governor. There's a, part of us that should, there's a part of us that should be grieved over that. But the, the other part of me goes, what did I expect? Really? What do you expect? And we can, we can say, what do we expect? And go, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to, whatever's coming to them is coming to them. Or I go, no, I'm armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's going to change this country is one person at a time sharing the gospel and one person at a time coming to saving faith. Because our job is not to change the culture. Our job is to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit standing in His Word and to grow in boldness, in courage, in obedience, and to actually go into the culture with others, hopefully, so we're not pulled into the culture and shine and share Jesus. If you long for a Christian nation in any way, vote for people you want to vote for. Vote for the amendments that are best for the culture at large. But, but don't be deceived. Don't be deceived that you wake up 10 years from now and it, it, it's 16% Christian in northern Colorado now and you wake up 10 years from now it's 8%. You go, I don't know what happened. Fox News has higher ratings than CNN. I don't know what happened. We now got a Christian president in office. Not now. I'm talking, I'm projecting later. We now have a, a Christian president in office someday. Why are we at 8% Christian in this country? It's because the church has lost its purity. And we're not going into the culture and loving people instead of judging people. I told you this before. I've got a sister. Sorry, I'm way off my notes. And we're just a couple minutes over time. Thanks for the extra time, brother. Uh, I've got a sister. Um, gosh, I think I can say it. I've got a sister that is uh, out in the open lesbian. She's got a partner. I love my sister. I love her partner, actually. I love them. Partner has cancer. I prayed that God would remove that cancer from her, not take her, because the hope for her is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to stop judging the culture. Yes, yes, I want to see, um, I, I don't, I'd love to see gay marriage off the table. I'd love to see that, all that happen. 
I can't make that happen. I can vote, but what I can do is I can, I can walk in holiness, tripping up along the way, asking for forgiveness, knowing that my Father will never leave me, and at the same time, go out and engage the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not judging them. It actually says we're never to judge a culture. We're to judge one another. That's a whole other sermon. Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you. Um, God, I, I fear that I might have brought some offense to your word. Um, I thank you for your amazing patience with us. That you are relenting, pouring out your entire wrath on this corrupt and broken world. Because you desire more people in your family. The only one, the only thing holding it all together is you. And God, we praise you and we... I shake and tremble with fear knowing that you have handed the gospel baton to us, your church, and that the only hope for the culture, the only hope for mankind is that they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And we know that people are not saved outside of hearing the word of God. And I thank you, God, that we are your prophets today. Not proclaiming new revelation, but, pro but proclaiming the timeless revelation. The ancient word of God that can set the captives free from the power and the penalty of sin. From the power of Satan and the power of death. So God, would you use us to that end for your glory and for the sake of your blood-bought people. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.